Hello and welcome to another episode of An Irish Man Abroad. What you're about to hear is the full interview with John Connell. This week we thought we'd give everyone a full interview to give you a taste of what you're missing out on over on patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad where this year we moved the entire podcast, all its archive and all its spin-off shows including Irishman in America, Irishman Inside Basketball, Irishman Running Abroad with Sonia O'Sullivan and lots, lots more. So for the price of a coffee each month you gain access to everything and you're able to support the show in the process well John Connell is our guest today and he is a best-selling author in case you don't know and like many Irish men and women over the years John left Ireland for Australia and it was there that he found great success as an award-winning investigative journalist and lecturer but five years ago John moved back to Ireland and back to his family farm in Longford he turns this experience of this first calving season into his number one bestseller, The Cow Book, and has become one of Ireland's most respected contemporary writers as a result. The Running Book is his most recent work and is available now in print and audiobook and wherever you get your books. And we talk to him now about how he was able to use this love of running as a jumping off point to discuss everything from race, politics and the British Empire, among lots, lots more. It's an extraordinary read and he's an extraordinary man. I know you're going to love this episode. As I mentioned, we have extended and tripled the output of our podcast since lockdown began all the way back in March on a Tuesday, you get your Sonia Sullivan episode, the uh, Irishman Running Abroad podcast is about running as a metaphor for life. And this month, I think we're about a quarter of the way through. I cannot believe it, nearly 400 kilometers run in my challenge to run 2000 kilometers in a year in aid of our chosen charity partner, jigsaw.ie to support me on this quest go to idonate.ie and search the Irishman Running Abroad Challenge we've hundreds of runners who listen to this show taking part in the challenge now and it really is gaining in momentum I'd love you to join me if that's going to be your New Year's resolution come on board there's a challenge each month to keep you on track and of course there's Sonia's coaching every step of the way as I said on Fridays we're continuing the Irishman in America with Marion McKeown because as we know there is a lot more water to go under the bridge there before January 20th and beyond so if you become a patron this week you'll gain access to that and all the back catalogue of episodes which really now become this weird historical document of what the hell happened in this election Marion McKeown is sensational each week on the show and you're missing it by not being a patron. One final announcement in terms of patreon.com and that is that we launched our gift tier. So if you're struggling for that last minute gift for someone, head over to patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. Sign up to the gift tier and you can gift a year's worth of Irishman Abroad, an Irishman Abroad t-shirt and pin to whoever you know is already a fan of the show but maybe can't afford to become a patron themselves. Now, enough of my yapping. Let's get to it. It's the John Connell episode of An Irishman Abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately 
I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Johnny Threego! inundated with uh, press and stuff for the book but it seems to be doing really really well I'm so delighted that it's continued to uh, flourish and get so much traction how has it been? So yeah no it's been a really interesting experience I suppose the biggest thing was the book came out in the middle of the pandemic and the same week that it was released 300 other books came out so it was a real um, How many? Sorry what, what did you say? 300, 300 other books yeah, between the UK and Ireland, my agent mentioned that. And then earlier in that month, there was one day, I think they called it Super Tuesday or something, and 600 books came out. So what had happened was the publishing industry in the UK and, and Ireland to a certain extent had held on to books all year mm. because of COVID. And then they released the majority of them in September. So there was books that... Um, that never even like fantastic books, but never even got any mention in the in the media. So while I didn't get as huge a response as I would have liked, I did get media coverage. So I was really happy with that. Mm. And uh, I remember talking to a books editor from a well-known newspaper, and he said to me, "He said the books just keep coming." He was like, "I don't have column space for everything, you know." So it's it's it was that was kind of. That was kind of interesting, but the book has, yeah, it kind of really opened me up to um, to a new audience of people because people would have thought that I was the farmer guy who wrote the cow book, and um, it kind of, yeah, it opened it up into a whole other thing. It was interesting, like, because the book is a commentary on colonialism as well as fitness, and uh, a lot of people just steered away from, talk, from talking about that. Yes, that's, <laughs> this is, I did want to get to this because... In all that coverage, the focus seemed to be a lot on mental health. And even myself, we had you on Irishman running abroad with Sonia O'Sullivan. And, you know, we, we tended to focus on the running aspect of it and, uh, you know, how you discovered that. But really, this activity was the vehicle to talk about history, colonialism and to a large extent, Ireland's part in that. And how we deal with the scars of it and how we come to terms with uh, our own involvement in colonialism. How how hard is was it for you to kind of come to that yourself? And has anybody really talked to you about that side of the book? I've done one interview with um, Eamon Dunphy and uh, that's where we talked about it. It was fantastic. And, uh, and yourself now. So it's been an interesting one. Yeah, I suppose... Um, like, I wanted to talk about that. The book was dedicated to Stephen Ray, the actor, and mm. he and I are good friends, and we would talk about this sort of stuff all the time. And um, uh, Stephen's quite a political guy, so I suppose it would it would just come out in our conversations, and, and I'm quite political. So 
I remember after I wrote the cow book, um, I had wrote the running book uh, two years ago or three years ago, and I, I I said to him, "This is this will be my next book, and it's it's about this." And and I couldn't articulate why I wrote a book about running and colonialism, but it was just a, the running in a way was a vehicle to um, understand the past and the present. Yeah, I was kind of um, I kind of found it interesting that people didn't focus on it, probably because it's. Um, it's an awkward conversation. It and, is an awkward. Uh, that is it, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. an awkward conversation. It was like some of the reviews said, "Oh, and he was so touching about the history." And uh, I was like, "God," I said, "I'm not really touching about the history. I'm kind of like laying it out there." You know? <laughs> so, so um, explain it to the listeners then that that this will be news to their ears. And like to mm-hmm. be honest with you, when to hear you articulated is better than me kind of doing what what a lot of uh, book journalists will do, which is they'll tee you up by telling you what your book is about. I'm sorry if you're doing a Pat Kenny impression there. All, all due respect <laughs> to Pat Kenny. But there yeah. is a tendency, isn't there, to, to well, kind of tell the author what they said. Why don't you yeah, tell us what you said? Well, yeah, what happens, I suppose, for, for the listeners to know is there's there's media talking points in books and um, that's how it goes. But um, yeah, the colonialism thing, well, essentially, you know, we're, we are post-colonial people. Uh, we live in a society in Ireland that, um, well, part of society uh, is post-colonial and um, we are living in the wake of the British Empire and what happened here for 700 years. And um, we have never had the conversation about what do we do after empire ends. And there's a good reason for that. We were so poor and we were so busy with trying to build a nation that we didn't really have time to think about the after effects of empire. But it, it's it's there. It's it's so much more than just uh, a jealousy or, or a friendly rivalry with um, when we're playing each other in sport. It's about a psychological wound that occurred in this nation and um, how we come to terms with it. And the best way I could describe how I heard it was um, I was watching a online mass and uh, now I sound like a total holy Joe, but sometimes I watch mass and uh, there was a, a, a mass from New York and uh, the guy was talking about like the disciples seeing Christ after Easter, we must make peace with our scars. And I put that line into the book because in a sense, that's what post-colonialism is. It's it, we are the the oppressor is never going to say I'm sorry. They're never going to acknowledge all the wrong that was done. So the peace with the scars has to come from us. We are the disciples. We have to we have to form a blanket of comfortness in ourselves and come to terms with all that occurred. Of course, the wound is is still open because of um, the troubles in Northern Ireland and, and we're living with the effects of, of, of colonialism there. there uh, and I'm not, I'm not taking any sides or getting into any rah-rah argument, but, but what the people that live in Northern Ireland are the product of colonialism. Um, there was a planter society there. So uh, that's where all the tensions come from. And um, it was an interesting argument that I wanted to talk about. But what I wanted to do was look at the effect of colonialism around the world, because wherever I had run, but also in my running, I had lived in these places, which was America, Canada and Australia. I'd lived in former colonies of Britain 
And um, in those colonies, there was the dispossessed. And uh, I often worked with them from Aboriginal people in Australia to Native Americans in America. And um, I empathised with them because in so many ways they reminded me of of the struggle in Ireland. And uh, in particular, I spent a long time in Australia. Aboriginal Australians have had a similar journey. A similar journey. They've had a land rights struggle. We had the land war. They've had they've had recognition for votes. We had a recognition for for votes uh, and and uh, universal suffrage. And and I suppose they also suffered uh, the denigration of their image by the oppressor, which we also did as well. And you only have to look back at. Um, you know, the old punch cartoons where the Irish are depicted as apes and you realise it's not that long ago. Mm. And recently I did a conversation with Afua Hirsch, who's a British um, yeah, writer. And I could, yeah, and Afua and I had a really, that was that was a full-on conversation about all this stuff. Mm. One of the and things suppose, you said in that really quick uh, was mm. that, you know, you can tell the story of England without mentioning the Irish, but you can't tell the story of Ireland without mentioning the English. Can you go into that a, a little bit more? Because to me, that seems like the one of the the most galling things for Irish people in the UK is that they've decided that that's how you can tell the story of England and that's how you will teach the story of England without mentioning the Irish. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's a brilliant British film essayist, Adam Curtis, who who makes programs for the BBC every few years, and they're they're generally newsreel material with voiceover. And he did one called The Power of Nightmares, which was about the construction of the real story of World War Two after the war. And it was the Allies had to make sense of what the war had been about and what had been fought about. And they added the narrative after the war, because when the thing was going on, they didn't know the full narrative. And in a sense, um, the history uh, has been wrote after the fact. And yeah, someone decided to to leave this stuff out. Like the Irish get a mention in probably Dalriada, which was where uh, St. Colum Kill went up to form um, a monastery in Scotland. And that became a centre point of civilization in, 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 in Britain for, for, uh, for a while. And then we're kind of, yeah, not mentioned <laughs> after that. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a strange thing that yeah you uh, that you can that you can you can tell the whole history of Britain and not mention it. But but similarly, it's like um, in a similar way, the history of Britain is also told when they go to America or they go to Australia, and it on, the history only starts when um, when, they when the British yeah. they arrive. You know, and I'm I'm conscious that it was it was Thanksgiving the other day. And um, you know the narrative of the the pilgrims' fathers coming from coming from England, and the positive relationship they had with the Native Americans, but essentially history only started then. Then, yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, for just forgetting the twelve thousand years that the the Native <laughs> Americans had, well, been, John, had been living you, there. You see, you see this thing that you're saying about uh, you know healing the wounds of it and the oppressor isn't going to apologize and that we nearly have to come to terms with our post-traumatic stress as a nation. You know, there are those that have difficulty with that and plenty of people that have difficulty with that and kind of throwing that out there because they feel like, well, how will we learn from history if our attitude is to just, oh, we just need to make peace with the wounds of it and uh, kind of put it back on ourselves to move on because those that were 
brutal in the past aren't going to show uh, signs of remorse. How, first of all, do you uh, address those people? And secondly, if I am looking to heal my own post-traumatic stress in relation to it, what do I do? Well, I suppose, um, you know, there's a line I say in, in the running book that history history of a thousand years ago is much more palatable than history of even a hundred years ago. I think, you know, it's an interesting one. In my time in Australia, uh, they have set up a truth and reconciliation committee and it was to reconcile indigenous people with um, the crimes that had been done against them by the settler society. And it's by no means perfect, but it started a dialogue. And I say, and I suppose in a way, you know, Shashi Theroux, the former uh, Undersecretary General of the United Nations, did an, an address at Oxford and he talked about this and he said um, all he wanted was Britain to pay, you know, I think it was one one penny a year for, for reparations of what they did to India. And um, I think it's really... We just want an acknowledgement. We don't need it to be. We don't. We don't need reparations for for the hundreds of years. We we just need a acknowledgement of what happened. And I think you know when you have enlightened leaders, things like that do happen. I mean, in Australia they had a, a sorry day where they apologised to the victims of the stolen generation. A similar thing happened in Canada as well. And um, I think that um, in order for for these two islands to fully come to to an understanding of each other sometimes a gesture is is more than enough and i think i think that you know in a way i think actually um the queen visiting ireland was a massive gesture um and i think that we came to appreciate that there was mutual understanding between the two nations now there are many other gestures that could be done i'm aware of like tony blair apologized for the famine when he was in power and things like that there's there's touchstone moments that can be done that uh, would uh that would just uh, that would just make a difference to someone, but um, obviously we're not going to expect Britain to apologise for something that the Normans did in the 12th century. You know that's too too long too long ago. But uh, I always remember um, Tim Robinson, who was a writer and ge- geographer. He um, he did an enormous work of, of map making in Galway. And he said that in in his own way, his three books, his Connemara trilogy, were a, a sort of a making amends for things that his countrymen had done. And uh, I think that something like that, small gestures like that go a long way. There's no point in holding on to the anger because like Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist monk says, you know, holding on to a piece of coal, uh, it just burns you. So we have to let go of, of, of the hot coal because... Uh, you know, the majority, the, the reality is, Janet, the majority of English people don't actually know what occurred in Ireland. And that's not their fault. You know, the everyday um, English man or woman isn't fully aware of everything. So it's very hard to get them to feel that they must say sorry for something uh, when they're not aware of what exactly happened. And that goes back to the fact that, you know, the history of Ireland isn't taught in the British curriculum. So. You have a way of talking, John, that... Uh makes me tune in in a way I don't to other people. And you also, in the book and books, you have a way of articulating yourself that allows us to get to things that aren't on the beaten track in terms of what people talk about. It's clear that your faith is important to you and that you've read an awful lot 
of scripture. When did the idea of joining the priesthood first appear in your mind and when did it get put to bed? Yeah, uh, I sound like someone from the 1950s. <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> I? <laughs> well, you know, I was when I was a little boy, um, my babysitter was a nun and um, she was a plainclothes nun and her name was Michelle and or is Michelle and um, she would have taken care of me uh, when my mum would have been at work and I suppose there would have been little conversations then that we would have talked about this stuff and I remember my parents because we like I was I was born in 86 but um, there was still that this is before the scandals in the church so there was that aura of having a priest in the family was a was a good thing. And um, I remember Sister Michelle gave me a little picture of the Virgin Mary uh, with with, uh, with Jesus as a baby. And uh, I would, when I was a little boy, if I was feeling unwell, I'd take the picture and go to bed with it. And, uh, you know, I, I look back at that now, as, uh, I don't know, it's, it's a bit silly. But um, no, faith was something that um, I really... I left for a while and then returned to. And... Um, I suppose I was living in Canada at the time. It's a really strange time. I was engaged to an ARS and I was living in a penthouse, flying around in private jets. And at the same time, and that's not a lie, that's, that all happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to have to roll back there a little bit. <laughs> but, uh, that was but, the time I was engaged to an ARS flying around yeah, in private jets. Flying around private jets, yeah. We, we will go back flight. to that, but, yeah. but keep going. But, um, I remember I was living that life and I was really lonely. I actually didn't know many people in Canada and um, I was turning to my faith a lot. And I remember really questioning it, like, do I really want to be like, do I want to give up this life and be a priest? And um, I suppose it was something I deliberated about for a long time and would have read a lot of scripture. And I actually only recently discovered a book called, um, or an idea called Liberation Theology, which is about, uh, from a South American uh, priest, or a Peruvian indigenous priest, which is essentially about um, that the church is for the poor. And it was really Marxist left-leaning left, left uh, um, ideology. And it, and it kind of, I was reading it recently and I was like, God, that makes total sense. Like if I was going to be a priest, that's what I'd want to do, like to work with the poor, not to support the rich. And the funny thing with liberation theology is it was widely condemned by the church because, of course, it didn't align with the people in power. And the, the church, the Catholic Church, have a tendency to side with the powerful and the rich, even though it's supposed to be for the poor. But um, I suppose, Charlotte, yeah, uh, why I didn't do it... Um, I got. I suffered with depression shortly after everything had happened in Canada, and I, um, I kind of thought that maybe there was another way to do what I wanted to do. Because I, as a I was an investigative journalist before that, and really I had dedicated my life to trying to make a difference and and tell people stories as from whether it was a civil war in Sri Lanka to indigenous rights to corruption stories. And I realized that perhaps there was another way, the way of the word and um, the ministry of the word and uh, that I could reach more people that way. And then, the, yeah. There must have been 
you know, a significant amount of disillusion there because, you know, all of the things that you've described, never mind the ARS, the investigative journalism wasn't just something that you were doing. You were winning awards for it. It was you were regarded as the top of the tree in Australia at the time. And it it obviously felt hollow. Yeah, you know, Charlotte, it was, uh, I'll be brutally honest, I was super successful in my early 20s. I had a business and a charity and loads of stuff. But really, looking back, so much of the work was done to receive adulation from outside and other people because I didn't... um, I didn't really like myself, and uh, I had a bit of a confidence issue. So by excelling and working hard, I could ignore myself and uh, also ex- receive external gratification. And really, my journey that I was on for the last 10 years, and it was an on and off journey, but last 10 years was one of actually coming to like me and be comfortable with me. And the strange thing was, when I finally sat down and wrote The Cow Book, my, my most celebrated book, I was being totally me. Mm. And uh, people were, and I think you and I talked about this the last time, but people were attracted and are attracted to authenticity. Mm. Yeah, you know, I still I still think about my life in Australia because it, it kind of ended abruptly. And then I had to start again in Canada, and then that ended abruptly, and then I started again. And, you know, I'd had two two life implosions, and really I was on this journey from there on to to come to a point of realization. But really it was a journey, it was this inner journey. And and I'll be honest, it only finished, um, that journey only finished this year. Well, I'm really been- interested in this side of things, John, and I know that for a lot of Irish men, they'll, they'll connect, and women will connect with the self-loathing, the uh, lack of self-worth, self-confidence. And, you know, anyone anyone who's taken a, a cursory look at the entertainment industry in which I operate will know that a lot of it is driven by people who deeply resent themselves and desperately seek the affirmation of strangers. I mean, I, I, I've, you know, gone into this and tried to deal with it myself. I mean, it it doesn't, it's not a normal thing to want to stand up in front of a room full of strangers and make them laugh every night of the week. And it's not something that everybody needs. I know where I trace my stuff on this stuff back to. Did you ever dig in and try and figure out, well, where does this come from? Where where did this all begin? Why do I not like myself? Yeah, I would have I would have went into uh, therapy and and talked about this, and it would have came from, you know, it would have came, like I was I'm from a very loving family, so it wasn't a family issue. It was just maybe bullying, and it was um, a sense of being a bit different, not fitting in, and then finding a talent that you could work at and be liked because of the talent, and mm. um, and then yeah, receive a bit of receive a bit of um i think it's actually you know it's it's an uh, it's normality you want to feel normal and it, it's weird you feel normal by getting up on a stage and talking in front of a lot of people and um it's it's um 
I know this with, um, I'm moving into working on TV and film, and um, uh, nobody knows this, so I might as well tell you now and, and your listeners, so that's kind of the area Brilliant. I'm moving into next. And, uh, but I've been spending a lot of time working with actors and some very famous actors, and uh, they all feel the same as I do, and they ask me, was I good in that? And it's really interesting when you are talking to a Hollywood actor and they're asking you, did I do a good job? And you realize that they feel exactly the same as you and uh, that it doesn't matter how old you get, <laughs> the feeling is the same. And, mm. uh, and that's something that um, it kind of gave me a little reality check. And it, it also made me realize that um, that the journey I've been on to get to a little place of of self-comfort, and I'm not fully there, but I'm, I'm, I'm a hell of a long way there, that it's actually given me a tool that a lot of successful people I know don't have. And um, it's a strange thing, you know, um, for an actor to do their job, they have to be seen by other people. You can't do your job without other people looking at you. And there's something strange in that. And for a writer to do their job, you can't do your job until it's read. And a musician's the same. Like you have, the process only works when there is a receiver. And I think you know the fear is is a good thing. It um, it pushes us to be better, to do a better job. But it it can bring a lot of anxiety. And I think that um, as a creative person, you're really only happiest when you're working. And then. It's it's the question of well how do I how do I live outside of that and how do I how do I function normally outside of that and you know I've listened to your show for a long time now and you've had you've had the creme de la creme of of, of, of Irish talent on and um, and you know we're all trying our very best to figure out this thing called life and uh, it's an interesting journey and. Um, but that's what I've learned in the last two years in working in film and TV and theatre is that everyone is concerned about how they're doing. It's it's interesting that you say that that journey came to an end in, in the last year, because I know for myself and what I try to tell myself is that the journey doesn't really end and that sometimes I probably pummel myself uh, with not being at the end of it. Do you know what I mean? That you're you're like, well, why why do I still need to be told you did a good job? <laughs> like, why am I still chasing that? And that, in fact, when I look to the the Dave Chappelle's, uh, the Roddy Doyle's of this world, the Tommy Tiernan's, they're at, so at home with themselves that it's nearly a bonus that you're laughing <laughs> or that you're enjoying this, that they're really this is something they enjoy. And that's to me always where I'm trying to get to is that place of, well, I love this and I'm doing this because I feel it's the full expression of what I believe to be good. And if you like it, you like it, you don't, you don't. But the truth is, John, and clearly, as you admit, you're still hoping people like it. You're still wishing for somebody to go. That was great. That was fair play to you. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I remember I was talking to Stephen once and um, the, the cow book had been signed. And I said to him, um, I said, it feels real. Like, 
I said, or I said, it's all happening, but it doesn't feel real. And he's turned around to me and he said, uh, John, it never feels real. It's only when you look back and you say, everything kind of fell into place, <laughs> you know? And I, th- I thought it was the best advice I'd ever got. Like yeah. it was, it was, um, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't feel real. It's on, and it's only when we look back in retrospect and you go, oh man, I made all the right moves there. Like, you know, yeah, everything yeah. kind of fell into place, but you're, you're discounting the, the projects that didn't work or you go, oh, well, I'm not counting that anymore. Or, or that, that failure led me on to this. And yeah, it's a, I mean, I suppose I said, you know, my journey was, was finished. It was, of course, the journey of the self is, is never finished. It's um, John O'Donoghue is this Celtic uh, spiritualist writer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kind of discovered him a few years ago. He's dead now. But he, he said this great thing. I was listening to him the other day. He said um, that the unlived life is, is, not, is, is the greatest sin. And um, that if we don't live our lives, or we 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 die wondering, as it were, that that's the greatest sin you could ever do, you know? Yeah. And like the ancient Greeks used to talk about the unexamined life, but but I think Donahue's right. It's, it's the unlived life. That's the that's the one. And you know, you're talking about the the comfort that Tommy and Roddy and them have. And they do because they've they've kind of found their niche. But I'm sure that there is a certain fear there that that keeps them mm. on their edge, you know? Otherwise, I'm thinking of, of Tommy, like, you know, like live comedy, and, and you know this better than anyone, like live comedy has to have an edge to it, otherwise it's it's not going to work. And I was, I was conscious of um, when Dave Chappelle did his, his very political uh, stand-up piece, um, I think it was eight minutes and 40 seconds, and the, the time that it took George Floyd to pass away when he was murdered. I shouldn't say pass away, he was murdered. And um, there was a rawness there. And, and Chappelle gets up and he says, I don't know if this is going to work, but I'm going to tell you. And there's a fear there, but he, he he's he's tapping into the fear, but he's also, at the time, he was also tapping into the American psyche. And Chappelle, you know, actually that, I watched that piece and it was more like spoken word. Yeah. There was very few, there was very few jokes in it. it and that's, the, that's kind of where I see some comedians go. And I think it's this amazing space where, where, and comedy is this, stand comedy is this really amazing thing that it can do that. It can set the joke aside for a moment and enter the philosophical and scare the bejesus out of you because it's so true. You know? Yeah. yeah. Well, let me ask you this, uh, if we're to head towards running, because you mentioned there that you found a talent that you connected with and that you felt you were good at. You're clearly good at running. I mean, your connection to this thing, part of it must come from knowing I'm actually quite good at this. I mean, you're you're running an insane quantity of kilometers compared to the average runner. But uh, when we started, when Sonia and I started Irishman running abroad, we had a conversation over the phone that immediately made us both know that we're doing this, this is going to work. And that was just a discussion of running as a metaphor for life. You connected with that early doors and obviously have ruminated on it for years now. And one of the first things that that struck me and we could we could do a separate two hour show about this alone. It, it was the the observation that there are those that run for something and those that run from things. Uh, 
how much of one are you and how much of the other are you or are you one or the other? You know, it's a really, um, it's so interesting that you ask that question um, because a lot of people have asked me that question and I, I wrote that chapter and, and, and didn't think a huge amount about it, but I realize now that it, it's, it's really pivotal for people. But yeah, um, it, it really hits you. Yeah. As, as a reader, you're like, who? Because running isn't the operative word, is it? It's, it's, no. it's actually the pursuit of life. Like, how are you moving through life? Yeah. Is it out it, of fear or is it out of love? Well, that's it. And I think it's, it's um, you know, I would have started as someone who was running away from myself. I'd undergone a second breakdown in, in the space of two years. I'd managed to rebuild my life. It had fallen apart again. And um, running kind of came to me as this idea of, well, I had this image of remaking myself as a, as a new man. And uh, this guy I saw in my head, it's strange. He was calling to the, to the penthouse apartment door, but he had a beard and he had long hair and he was in, physically in really great shape. And um, I started to walk towards that image. So and, you had uh, this image in a so dream? Or, uh, I, I'm, I'm not clear. No, like you I, just I'm pictured a, this I'm a in strong, your mind. I pictured this. I'm a real strong believer in visualizations. And the trick about visualizations is uh, you have to have the visualization, but then you have to go and make it happen. And that's how they work. Uh, you 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 follow the road to get there, and it changes often. So I had this visualization, and um, and running sort of came to me. And I had ran when I was a kid, and I'd been pretty talented at it, and won lots of medals and stuff. And I'd left it aside, so it came back, and um, and I just started to fall in love with it because it was a way to rebuild my life. And um, I remember saying to my friend, when I was in Spain writing the cow book, uh, I said, all I really want to do is write and work out. <laughs> and, and in a sense, like I've got that life now, you know, I, I get to do that and, and farm as well. And it's been an interesting experience, but I would have started running away from myself, running away from problems. And I was someone who probably ran away from big issues in life. You know, I just would have moved away from them because I couldn't deal with them. And then I got to a point where my my work on myself allowed me to run to something. And what I was running to was, or running for, was a better life, more balance, mm. a happier person. And um, there was a doctor, Dr. George Sheehan, who's, who's a US cardiologist, and he's credited with um, starting the running boom in America in the 70s. And he didn't start running till he was in his 40s. And uh, he said that today is the big event. Today, it's today. It's not tomorrow or it's not yesterday. Today's the day that you're going to make the moment your masterpiece. And that was something that when I heard, I watched it on YouTube and then I subsequently read his books and uh, I thought, wow, that's, that's it. Like you have to make today your masterpiece because literally no one else is going to do it for you and running is life. And Sonia, Sonia, as your listeners would know, um, is a is a very deep thinker and she said when she blurbed the book for me she just said life is for running and i thought that's totally it you know it's mm. it, it is for running it is we are to get to the to the biological level we are the best long distance running animal in the world and people don't know that <laughs> but we are the best at that and yet we lead increasingly sedentary lives in front of 
computer screens or phone screens or in offices uh, in that cubicle life. And you and I are lucky. We don't live in the cubicle life. We can go out for a run. We can go for a walk. We're, 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 we're self-employed. But there are other people who are stuck in the cubicle life. And it's it's we forget that movement is, you know, we're, we have to be a good animal. And in being a good animal, we move, we feed ourselves, and a sense of goodness comes into physical exertion. And um, Seneca used to say that too. He used to say that um, there's a tiredness that comes through physical exertion that is a peacefulness. And uh, I think that that's a really powerful thing. Now, in the book, I talk about, um, it's interesting, I talk about running and how my grandfather was in the IRA in the War of Independence, and he would have been running too. And I question what he would have thought of me running for pleasure when, in his case, he was running for his life. <laughs> you know, and it's, a, it's an interesting thought. And, uh, you know, I don't know what he would have made of it, but um, I think that um, running is my office, and it's where I make sense of, of the world and of life. And uh, I think it can be the office for, for a lot of people because it's it's the ability to take the moment out of the day for you to make your own masterpiece. I mean, it really does loop back to the John O'Donoghue thing about, you know, life being for living. And, uh, you know, as you say, it is spiritual. And as you refer to in the book, the, you know, it's a church and a religion in itself. But then there are going to be people listening to this going, oh, lads, give me a break. I mean, Running is boring. Running is a pain in the hole. <laughs> and I couldn't, I can't do it because of my knees or I can't do it because I just get so bored. Like I've actually had people come to me to talk about the Sonia podcast who through that show have come to get it in, in that way that you're talking about, that they thought it was a form of self-flagellation. And in fact, it's a form of self-care that it's done from a place of self-love. And I know that uh, I, I've probably lost a few people here, but I think we all know physical activity like that at some point in our life that others would view as grind. But somewhere in it, you find a weird affection for yourself through doing it. How much am I saying there is off piece or how much of that no, I is exactly uh, what I, I think well, that's how that's that's how I live. That's how I feel. I think that I think that the people who don't get it, it's it's actually so there's some people you have to find your play mm. and in finding your play. It may not be running. It might be cycling. It might be swimming. But I think that the active life is a life that. Um, not only do you feel good because of just the chemical process of endorphins, but you you can start to center your day around things. And I was doing an interview the other day in Australia, as the book just came out there, with a friend who's, um, who's Chinese-Australian, and he's a swimmer. And he said uh, he's, he, he's, he, he, it's a big hobby of his. He swims in pools all over the world. And uh, he said, you know, Chinese-Australians don't normally swim. So it's a big deal for him to get into the water and start doing this on a regular basis. And um, 
he found his play and we were talking about that i said well you could easily write a book about swimming and he said totally he said it's where it's where i make sense of my life and i think that if we could get people to fall in love with movement we would in whatever form it is even if it's walking that you would find a more balanced day and you would also find that your anxieties and let's face it the modern world's pretty anxious place that your anxieties are lessened and that you're finding a center point uh, for yourself and i think really what it is it's for those who say oh well, i hate running or whatever it's maybe you haven't tried enough yet you know mm-hmm. maybe it, it'll take till you get your first runner's high and yeah, then you yeah. go then you go whoa this thing is this is this is awesome now i can understand it and what i for for me it opened up a world of sport that i hadn't really engaged with for years and then i started to really love this community and met other people mm-hmm. and i noticed when i engaged in a fit in a fitness life that a lot of the people that I had been hanging around with, I wasn't, I didn't have as much to relate to them to anymore because they were just drinking in the pub and stuff. And so I started to attract new, new, new friends, and um, it was kind of like an evolution of character. Yeah, I mean, beautifully put, and I have to say, uh, it has changed, you know, me in the last in the last while. I didn't think. If possible, we did one episode of I could push people back to one direction if they were going to go back and listen to that episode with Sonia about why people quit running. A lot of what you've said, John, there connects directly with it. That thing of you, it takes a while to fall in love with this thing for some people longer than others. And a big part of it is identity, seeing yourself and actually visualizing yourself as a person who runs. I want to finish on a story that I guess it hit the national media in that it was a remarkable moment in your life and in broadcasting history where you were speaking to Ryan Tuberty and Radio One when a man was on his way to take his own life and happened to listen to you and that conversation changed the course of his life. Can you tell the listeners about this experience and uh, what it meant to you yeah well i suppose it um it also changed the course of my life jarlett and uh i had as we've talked about i'd had uh, some two breakdowns and and uh i kind of had went through this the beginning of this journey and i'd went to see faith healers and all sorts of stuff i'd really tried everything and eventually i had kind of pulled my wounded body out of the fracas and I was back in the real world and I remembered that I was a writer and a journalist and that I could use my words to maybe help people and so I ended up writing a piece which went on social media first and then ended up on the Tuberty show talking about this and um, Ryan didn't know it and I didn't know it but there was a man on his way as you said to take his life and we did the interview and I remember that day, we did it in Galway, I remember feeling pretty good about what had happened and I said, well, if, if nothing comes of this, I feel like this is an end point to this dark chapter that I've been on. And uh, then the next day I was working on the farm and my sister rang me and she said, um, you should turn on the radio. And 
I quickly turned on the radio and heard that um, heard this letter being read out, and the man had said, um, "I was on my way to take my life. I had a rope and tablets in the car, and I turned on the radio and I heard you speak, and um, I decided not to take my life because of what you said, and I'm gone to get some help." And um, Tuppity read it out, and he was kind of lost for words. And I remember having tears of joy. And uh, I never thought tears of joy were a real thing, but um, I had them that day. I cried them that day, and I said, "If I hadn't went on the journey I went on, then there would be one less person in the world." And for me, that all um, made sense. That it was all preordained and predestined, and that that was what was supposed to happen. And um, I suppose I started to live my life from the inside out then and started to speak honestly about all the stuff we're talking about today. And I found that speaking from a point of authenticity, that people really resonated with that. And um, as a result, I've ended up becoming a motivational speaker. And I never advertise it. I've never asked to do any talks. But... Every month I do three or four talks. Don't advertise it. Like, don't even ask to do them. Just people write to me and ask me and pay me to do them. And I suppose it's a, like it's a postcard uh, from the edge, you know. It's like um, I'm writing to you from the other side of the abyss and I'm going to tell you that it might be shit for a while, but actually it's going to get better. And I'm living proof. And, you know, I remember when the book, um, when the cow book took off and it spent six months consecutively in the bestseller list i kind of said to myself each month was a year of my life that i had spent building my life again and i said this is like the universe showing me that um, if you put the work in that it will reward you and uh, it was kind of a strange thing like i said you know the whole world even the wall street journal came here to our family farm in longford when i started being me so imagine for all of your listeners, the power that you can cultivate if you start being yourself. And that's probably the greatest thing that you can do. And it's the takeaway, I suppose, I'd like your listeners to 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 get, you know. It's kind of, um, I'm a bit daunted really being on this show, you know, I was listening to Barry Keoghan and Hosier <laughs> lately, and I was just like, <laughs> holy crap, I'm on it now. But it's, it's, um, but it's the same message that, that those guys are talking about. It's just being yourself always you're successful because he's authentic mm. like you know and your podcast is successful because it's authentic and people people come to this space to hear truth not bs well john connell that is an absolutely perfect place to finish this conversation it's been truly special i uh massively grateful massively grateful to you uh for your work uh what you've written and what you've said today thank you so much and uh, good luck thanks Charles take care well, what can you say what a man oh I got choked up at the end of that one it was uh, a, a truly extraordinary fella and an unbelievable read the running book is out wherever you get your books jigsaw.ie are a chosen charity partner I would love it this Christmas if you chose to just kick in 
that little extra, that gift that you're thinking, oh, well, is that a bit of an over the top gift? Maybe scale it back 25 euros and throw that 25 euros towards Jigsaw, who are doing incredible work for youth mental health across Ireland, equipping young Irish people with the mental health skills they'll need to survive in life. As I always say, I remember vividly how hard it was to be a young person. I cannot begin to imagine how difficult it is now with all of the challenges they face. Never mind the pandemic. It is just an extremely difficult time to be a young person and Jigsaw are focused on helping young Irish people across all communities through that. If you have a young person in your life, go over and have a look. Jigsaw.ie can help you and as I said, maybe with a couple of euro you can help them. The Irishman Running Abroad Challenge is the main focus of my fundraising for them. So come over and support me on idonate.ie to uh, be part of the challenge. You can actually sign up there and be part of it and listen to Sonia on a Tuesday and get involved. I know this is the last one before Christmas. So a Merry Christmas to all of you for listening to the show and supporting the show over the past very challenging year unprecedented times as Pat would say it has been a joy to make the podcast for you and it's not possible without the extra research of John Marr the production of Brian Connolly Tina and Mikey as always and all of you who get in touch each week at Podcast gmail.com I will see you on Tuesday we will continue podcasting right through the holidays because we need stuff to listen to when we're out on those walks but uh, thanks again for listening and I'll talk to you then.